is Waffle On Podcast. And welcome to this edition of Waffle On Podcast. I'm Simon Meddings. And my name is not Mark C. Kelly. <laughs> no. Welcome back, Peter Coleman. Hello, sir. Hello, it's very nice to be here. Thank right. you for having me back again. It's a pleasure. And uh, as you good listeners will notice, there is no uh, Mark C. Kelly. Uh, he's not with us on this edition of Waffle On. Uh, it's only the second time he's missed a podcast in three years, but. Uh, he has uh, more important things to do to a certain degree and if you are married or going to be married you'll understand why he's about to be married and he has a thousand and one things to do uh, including bridesmaids dresses don't know whether he's wearing them or picking them up I think he's uh, stitching them wouldn't surprise he's a bit like Dobby the house elf at the moment he is uh, so uh, Cal good luck and we'll see you uh, next month so what are we talking about on this edition Pete what indeed yes and this is the Following up on a threat that you've been hanging over my head for some time, it's the Blues Brothers. Indeed, indeed. And an, a, another first for Waffle Arm. We have just literally just finished watching it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it. I've been a fan of it since uh, ooh, around about 1986, I think. And Pete, you've watched it for the first time when? About five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I'm curious to know what you actually think of the film, which, which, which is quite interesting because we're going to talk about it now. But <laughs> we are, yes. <laughs> Gosh, well, I'll say firstly that I, I'd be very interested to hear about the background and what led up to that film being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a lot of the guys are very famous from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And I'd be really interested to get some of the background as to where they came from and um, what led to the film. Um, because I have to say, I mean, one of the first things is that obviously it's a 1980 film. Mm-hmm. And so to a certain extent it's dated. I would say it's a great excuse to play lots of fantastic music, mm. but I found the plot absolutely paper thin. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> and the comedy, and I realised about halfway through what I was comparing it to in terms of 1980 comedies, mm. Airplane. Right. And in terms of the comedy, that was absolutely stick thin as well. Mm. Um, so it was, for me at the moment... Um, until I'm given a bit more background about it, which will put it in better context, mm-hmm. which I'm keen to hear about. Yeah. Um, at the moment, um, full marks for the music. Yeah. Um, but everything else seemed rather convoluted. <laughs> so, but then again, first time for me, so um, I well, hope yeah, you can I'm... fill me in about a bit of the history and uh, yeah, well, the background. Ho- hopefully, we will do. I, mean, I really wanted to try and get your initial first reaction straight away, <laughs> because it, otherwise it would have been pointless to us doing this right after um, uh, yeah. watching the film yeah I mean I, th- I think going into the film there were certain bits which I thought oh yeah they haven't, haven't spent a lot on, on this mm. have they um, <laughs> you know you can, you can spot them cutting corners left right and centre mm. and that's until you get to the last bit of the film where you see where all the money went yeah um, you know, it's it's like five dollars on the first half of the film, <laughs> and then you know half a million on the last half. Yeah. So, but yeah. Oh well. Okay. Well, um, let me tell you a bit first of all where the Blues Brothers actually come from. Um, so I won't look at the screen where the script is because uh, it's not there. Um, the Blues Brothers first of all came on Saturday Night Live back in the mid seventies, around about seventy six, mm. and they uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. 
had become very good friends, very close friends, and was writing together, uh, you know, quite a bit. And Dan Aykroyd is a huge fan of blues music, uh, rhythm and blues, soul, and uh, John Belushi was more into stuff like metal and also Beach Boys style music. But when Dan Aykroyd started playing in these acid tapes and these like uh, blank tapes and everything, he really, they've both really suddenly found a, a, a niche together of not only being good friends and writing partners, but they also found they loved similar music. And the Saturday Night Live uh, band, which was the same band you saw just on screen, uh, but with Paul Schaefer on keyboards, who installed the keyboardist on the David Letterman show, right. they decided to do a mu- the odd musical number. And the first number they did was, uh, I think it was King Bee. And they were dressed in the hat and the glasses, but not the suit. They were dressed as bumblebees. And okay. <laughs> the, hat, the hat comes from a, a tribute to Johnny Hooker, who you saw in mm. the film playing yes. Boom, Boom, Boom. Mm. It became so popular that they decided to do it as a regular spot, singing mm. blues music, and decided to dress up in the suits. Um, the suits is a homage to 40s, 50s, 60s jazz music, and also a, a slight reference, uh, and this is from Dan Aykroyd, to The Men in Black. Okay. So you've got the mysteriousness of it all. Mm. Um, they got that big that in 1978 they went on tour, and this was the briefcase full of blues tour, opening for Steve Martin at uh, <laughs> the huge amphitheatres that Steve Martin used to play doing his Wild and Crazy Guy yeah, uh, comedy yeah. tour. So they were the opening act. One of the first <laughs> times that a comedy act would have a musical number at the beginning of it. Right, they did, right. then did a brief tour and then decided to make the film. So that's the, that's the brief history of where Got you. Okay, thanks. Because my uh, comedy history as far as Saturday Night Live goes mm. is insofar as the Pythons fitted into it really you've been so, Harding hosting it and Eric Isle yeah, yeah yeah so that's really the only experience I have of it and mm. it's um, yeah, probably something I need to catch up on in terms of um, sheer comedy history like like, like everything with, with comedy um, a lot of Saturday Night Live is, date, is dated you can buy now uh, recently been released Saturday Night Live box sets of the years uh, I think Great. 76 is the first one and it's actually really, a really good reason but it's like 8 99 it's like 8 discs or something <laughs> ridiculous but the only trouble is of course is that as you say things are dated through them but when you think about that the first series of Saturday Night Live you've got the likes of obviously Bill Murray <laughs> uh, Chevy Chase Gilda Radner John Candy all these fa- you know brilliant uh, comedians oh, great uh, a couple of them sadly yeah. no, lo- no, obviously no longer or no longer funny but I think and this is um, somebody mentioned this um, line at long ago oh it was um, Sexy Nerd Girl her blog uh, the, the, one of the last uh, sketches she did her partner in this turned around and said no Saturday Night Live film has been any good I disagree because I think The Blues Brothers does work as a film uh, away from Saturday Night Live as a single sketch stuff like Wayne's World uh, Coneheads and all this stuff mm, probably slightly hit and miss really. Mm, mm. but I think The Blues Brothers is, is a, an exception to that sure okay because um, you know, now that you've explained that a little bit more mm. what I'm what I'm understanding now is that and it does help to put it in context is that it, the film felt like a big payoff yeah to something mm, definitely um, and obviously I wasn't part of the party that kind of um, mm. was was there with the origins of it but obviously I'm understanding now that you've got two very well loved characters who've mm. been doing this for a while yeah and it reminds me of something that we that we did in um, the Only Fools and Horses podcast. Mm. When we were talking about the later years of Only Fools and Horses, what happened there was that you could put two or three well-loved characters yeah. into a situation, um, and the audience would love them, and whatever the situation was, of course they'd find it funny, of course they'd get yeah, with of it, course. of course. Um, so, so that 
given that background, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting the film a little more slack even as we speak. <laughs> there was two albums that I did um, uh, before the film. There was Briefcase Full of Blues and it was also Made in America. Hmm. I think it was called, I'm sure it was called Made in America. This is all off the top of my head. Um, so let's go into the production details of the film. The film was written by Dan Aykroyd and John Landis and based, as we just said, on the popular blues world segment. Now, the interesting thing, this was Dan Aykroyd's first ever screenplay for a film. Hmm. And you can probably tell to a certain degree. But his initial transcript for it when he finished writing it was 324 pages long (laughs) this is three times the normal size for a film script and it was then handed over to John Landis to cut it down and trim it into a filmable film script now that film script he actually jokingly wrapped it up in a uh, telephone book when he handed it in but his actual film had the history of Jake the history of Elwood because they're not actually officially brothers no. They're, they're not from the same family, okay. but they, they just joined together when they were children in in the orphanage. And it was it was the whole thing was the history of them, the history of Curtis, the history of the orphanage, the histories up to when they got into jail. Blimey! So it was literally the whole Bible of the Blues was as a film, but but a film script. Hmm. Now the, the the thing is, is what we just watched there. There was four moments in that film that I don't remember seeing before. Really? So even for me, I'm seeing it a bit because there was two major scenes that was put in the film that I'll talk about as we go along. But there was a few scenes that I, I actually don't remember seeing. So for me, that was quite good. Oh, really? I was thinking, I don't remember that bit. But <laughs> Yeah, because it occurs to me it's one of those films, and sheer, because of the sheer music content of it, mm. it, it strikes me as one of those films that at parties you'll have it on in the background. Nobody's watching to yeah, keep I mean, up. I'm sure, I'm sure there, was, there was music <laughs> that you heard there that suddenly you think everybody needs somebody to love, oh. shake a tail feather, all these songs that, that either I've probably played in the car when you've been with me or mm. you've heard on, as you say, at parties and at, at, at other stuff where you suddenly think it all slowly connects together. Oh, of course, um, yeah. It was Brilliant. directed by Landis and produced by Bernie Bilstein, George Folsey and David Sonza along with Robert K. Rice. It had a budget of £30 million and grossed just over £115 million. Uh, but at the time, um, it actually had quite a few bad reviews and was deemed a little bit of a failure. Personally, if it's grossed £115 million out of a £30 million budget, I don't deem that as a failure. That's not a bad return. No. But then again, um, you know, given what I've just said, possibly mm. a few of the reviewers were going in, you know, just yeah, purely yeah. having seen yeah. you know if, it, if you spend your time in the cinema you haven't seen Saturday Night Live you don't understand mm. where the characters are from where they're coming from the good feeling that that's obviously shown towards them by the yeah, audience I mean I think it's definitely a, a um, it's seriously a serious American film there is no question about that. And Dan Aykroyd is, is, is totally not ashamed of that even though he's Canadian um, <laughs> but on the briefcase full, uh, full of Blues tours, that when you hear, I mean, I, I do recommend anybody, uh, and, and, and yourself as well, mm. um, go to YouTube and type in the Blues Brothers and search for the concert stuff. And especially search for Soul Man as performed on Saturday Night Live. Okay. One, the, the guitar playing in the band is brilliant anyway. John Belushi sings it fantastically, but Dan Aykroyd's dancing in it is absolutely <laughs> superb. He's so over the top. He's brilliant. You can tell they're really enjoying it, oh, yeah. and that's what that's what's actually really cool about it. Um, also, when when I mentioned the guys' names in the band, 
So this is a, a little bit of a hint to you all. Grab a piece of paper, grab a pen if you don't know who these people are. And when I read the names out, I'll tell you who to look for on, on YouTube. Because it's, these guys have been playing from the 50s onwards, and you see them really young on YouTube. <laughs> and it, but, but you see them actually in their pure form of playing the guitar and everything like that. So let's talk about the cast uh, first, or the, the main two members. John Belushi plays Juliet Jake Blues, of course, is the lead vocals in the Blues Brothers. Born John Adam Belushi, January the 24th, 1949, in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, died March the 5th, 1982, at the tragic age of 33 in California at um, Chateau Le Mans. Uh, mm. Anyway, the place where everyone seems to die. You know, <laughs> um, shortly before his death, uh, Belushi filmed a cameo for the comedy series Police Squad. Ah. <laughs> oh, okay. We've made a little connection there already. Yeah, I mentioned Airplane. Yeah, I mentioned uh, yeah, Abraham Zucker Zucker. And, uh, yes. Uh, at the okay. suggestion of the show's producer, Robert K. Rice, Belushi was filmed face down in a swimming pool dead. Uh, the footage was part of a running gag where the episode's special guest star would not survive past the opening credits without meeting some gruesome end. The yes. scene was cut <laughs> after his death, and the footage actually is believed to have been lost. Which is really, yeah, wow. a bit of a shame for that there. But uh, obviously, you wouldn't have seen much of him. But um, no, but I remember the titles to Police Squad were just mm. fantastic because I mean. It, just as they did with the end credits, the opening titles of Police Squad were always slightly different. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was always a joy. Uh, Dan Aykroyd plays Elwood Blues, who uh, plays the harmonica and, of course, is also lead vocals. Born Daniel Edward Aykroyd, July the 1st, 1952, in Ottawa, in Canada. Dan Aykroyd wrote the roles of Dr. Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters and Emmett Fitzhugh in Spies Like Us, with John Belushi in mind. But, of course, the roles went to former Saturday Night Live castmates Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. Now, other members of the cast, I'm just going to read them through. Uh, we're not going to talk about them because otherwise we'll, we'll literally be here all night. It's already quite late. Um, <laughs> legendary soul singer and jazz singer Cab Calloway. Um, seeing him play uh, Minnie the Moochie in his uh, traditional gear that he wore on stage, I think was a great little nod to him, I think. It was a great little sequence, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, other, the other version of Minnie the Moochie that I'm quite fond of is the one uh, done by Hugh Laurie. <laughs> on the uh, on the soundtrack for Jeeves and Worcester. Oh, really? There's a lovely version that Hugh oh, Laurie does. Oh, that's the fun, because I've got you the complete Jeeves and Worcester at home on DVD. Yeah, so get, get to... the CD as well. Oh, and, okay. and, uh, if, I can find, if I can find that, and if I can remember, I'll stick that right at the very end, <laughs> after the full version of Everybody Knows Whatever. Um, Cabby Fisher turns up here, out of a role in Princess Leia, looking quite hot, I must say. Yes, looking normal, and, um, well, as, as sane as you'd expect Carrie Fisher to appear at any mm. time of the day or night. Did really. you notice the name of the shop that she runs? Uh, curl up and die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, legendary singer Aretha Franklin uh, does a fantastic performance. Wow, yeah. Uh, Ray Charles, um, James Brown, John Candy, who I didn't want to tell you John Candy was in this film. I was, I was just waiting, as soon as I saw him pull up in the car, I was like, oh, I hope you clock it's John Candy straight away. <laughs> yeah. No, and, uh, I mean, this is 1979, so obviously he's just up and coming. And again, it's another one of those things where you. you oh, I love John Candy. I still find it hard to believe he's no longer with us. It's it's one of those horrible things when you see him, you know. Yeah, because I mean, he's, he's turned in so many very memorable comic performances. Um, and really, while you can imagine people coming through out of the same mould to um, slot into the roles, film roles that would be uh, done by Dan Aykroyd mm, and Bill mm. Murray and so forth. Um, now you you can't really replace somebody like John Candy. I mean, no. that's. Uh, that's a big space to fill, it quite literally. It was indeed. Uh, Catherine Freeman, 
Turned up as the Penguin, Henry Gibson as head Nazi, Steve Lawrence as the agent, Twiggy. Yeah, uh, in, in a strange role as the chic lady. Um, Do you think that was um, just a case of um, you know, her being around at the time? Was I that think a, it was a case I, of just just passing and why not be in our film? I think I think it was. I think she was modelling for someone, and I, I can't say if this was true, but I think she was dating somebody. I don't know. <laughs> if, I don't know for sure, so I'm not going to say because <laughs> I hate getting facts wrong. Even though, of course, we always do. Uh, Frank Cars, of course, is the correction officer right at the beginning <sighs> of the film. Uh, Jeff Morris as Bob Charles Napier. Uh, who says the classic line uh, what are you going to do about it? you're going to funny trying to eat corn on the cob with no fucking teeth <laughs> <laughs> now that that's a, that's a pretty good line and he also says my other favourite line where he turns vain to um, um, to Bobby and just goes don't you say a fucking word <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh at that easily pleased um, <laughs> St- Stephen Williams Armand, Armand Salami played the troopers uh, the choir soloist was Shaka Khan Chuka Khan. <laughs> very good. <laughs> we know a song about that. Don't yeah, we? we do. Let's not get it. Uh, <laughs> uh, John Lee Hooker is in there as well. John Landis turns up as a state trooper. Okay. Stephen Bishop with the uh, police officer Burke Rush. Paul Rubens as the chaise waiter. Do you recognise Paul Rubens? Uh, He's the one who come and had the order. We oh, had Don Perignon first. Yes. Uh, yeah, he did, look, he did look more of a character than you Oh my lord! I know. Yes, and we all know what Paul Williams was uh, arrested for. Ooh, uh, let's not even go there. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have Kel to send us into uh, <laughs> massive litigation. M- massive uh, <laughs> yes. in a porn center. Okay, uh, uh, Pint Up Perkins as Luther Jackson. No idea that is. And of course, Steven Spielberg, who you failed to recognise as the uh, Cork County Assessor's Clerk Office, doing a, a cheeky little cameo there. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Now the 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 things I noticed um, when you mentioned um, uh, John Lee Hooker and um, right. James Brown, yes, yeah. Brown. Um, yeah, interesting that those were shot both both shot on days when neither Aykroyd nor Belushi were there. Uh, yes, uh, and the reason why was because uh, <laughs> oh, even though John Lee Hooker can... was there, they were because he's noticed and in the street standing behind him. But yeah, you're right with. Uh, I think with James Brown, uh, because there is some continuity faults in that section, because you see them dancing next minute and they're still standing still, which always annoys me slightly. But um, the reason, one of the reasons is um, both um, James Brown and Aretha Franklin couldn't mime to their <laughs> tracks. They sang them live. Okay. Oh, well, in Aretha Franklin's case, that's, yeah, yeah, that's because, plain to see. Because every it? time yeah. they do those songs, they're always slightly different. Hmm. So that's why there's a certain thing about that. I just love the choreography as well. It's brilliant. I love the choreography in, uh, in, with Ray Charles, actually, doing Shake a Tail Feather. Oh, and yeah. the reason why I like it is because the fact that if you look closely in the you've obviously got your trained uh, you know, dancers, mm. and but you've got the odd white guy or the white, odd white old guy, cause generally <laughs> a black uh, black dancers, but the odd white guy who just looks like they found him in a gutter and said, would you mind yeah. just standing there? It's brilliant. Um, the Blues Brothers Band. Uh, now, I've had the privilege of seeing all of these people play on stage. Goodness. Uh, I went and saw the, um, the Blues Brothers uh, Band live at the uh, Alex in Birmingham okay. uh, back in I think it was 1989 and uh, the singers for that was um, Eddie Floyd right and uh, and there was another chap there whose name I, I can't remember um, but yeah I saw all of these people so um, I am 
quite pleased to see it. Um, so let's just uh, mention these names because I'll actually talk about the band members after this. But you've got Steve, uh, the Colonel Quapper on lead guitar, rhythm guitar, and vocals. Donald Duck Dunn as bass guitar. Uh, Murphy Dune in keyboards. Willie Too Big Hall on drums and percussion. Tom Bones Malone on tennis saxophone and trombone. Lou Mavini on alto sax and tennis saxophone. Matt Murphy on lead guitar. And Alan Rubin on trumpet. Alan Rubin, otherwise known as Mr. Fabulous. There is actually on the soundtrack another saxophone, but uh, he's also on the Saturday Night Live band, but he's not in the film. Okay, a little bit of a bucket for him. <laughs> now, Steve Cropp and Duck Dunn are most well known for being in legendary band Booker T and the MGs, and you'll all know that from the brilliant tune Green Onions. <laughs> <laughs> small segment for copyright reasons also again if we play all the songs um, we'll be here for a long we will long, yes. long time but as I said go on to YouTube and check out uh, that uh, Booker T and G's Green Onions and have a look at how young Steve Cropper who does not have his beard at that point oh. and neither does Duck Dunn <laughs> and that, but you can tell it's them and also um, uh, Booker T Jones uh, actually looks very much very much like Noel Clark. <laughs> the actor Noel Clark. oh he's spitting image if they ever do oh, a film right. Noel needs to play it he really does <laughs> Uh, now, Jimmy, Will, uh, Jimmy Willie Hall also appeared uh, with Booker T on the album Universal Language. Keyboardist Murphy June got the role because Saturday Night Live Blues Brothers, a normal player, Paul Schaefer, could not get out of his contract with Saturday Night Live to do the film. Uh, Tom Malone, this is also a member of the CBS Orchestra, and Lou Marini, a brilliant saxophonist, has also been associated with the likes of, and we quote, Blood Sweat Tears, the Buddy Rich Band, Woody Herman Orchestra, and of course the Saturday Night Live Band, the Blues Brothers Band, James Taylor, Steely Dan, Frank Zappa, and the Magic City Jazz Orchestra. That is a good resume for anyone, I think. Certainly is, yeah. Still touring now. Matt Murphy, who I think is a brilliant guitarist, uh, he again say look him up on YouTube he looks mm. so young it's, it's crazy uh, <laughs> just just a brilliant guitarist now he's featured on uh, the Muddy Waters Act he's also played with Howling Wolf, Wolf. Uh, Little Junior Parker Ike Turner Memphis Slim James Cotton Otis Rush Eddie Etta James Sonny Boy Williams II Chuck Berry wow. Joe Lewis Walker now Murphy has been less active since he suffered a stroke on stage while performing in Nashville in 2003 yet he finished his set performing with just one hand Good Lord. Isn't uh, that one of the signs that you should look out for? Yeah, well, definitely. Well, <laughs> There's warning advertisements. probably sitting down and going to get help would have been more... Uh, you know, but, uh, <laughs> yes. Now, a benefit was mounted wow. by notable musicians of Memphis and Nashville. Murphy now resides in Miami, Florida, and has been playing with his two young prodigies, Tim O'Donnell and Dal Raines, and performed with his nephew Floyd in Florida Keys during the summer of 2009. Apparently, he is back slightly on tour, but doesn't really travel far for obvious okay. reasons. Hmm. Alan Rubin, otherwise known as Mr. Fabulous, sadly passed away in June of this year, 2011. Oh, right. Uh, which is the reason why I bumped uh, this this episode forward, because uh, when I found yeah, out he just, died, I thought it would be only fitting for us to actually do a tribute in this, in this year. Now, Rubin played with a array of artists, such as Frank Sinatra, Frank Zappa, Duke Ellington, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Emir de Toro, Sting, Aerosmith, The Rolling Stones, Paul Simon, James Taylor, Frankie Valli, Eric Clapton, Billy Joel, B.B. King, Miles Davis, Yoko Ono, um, Peggy Lee, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Ray Charles, and Dr. John. Blimey. 
<laughs> yes, no wonder you brought the podcast forward. It's uh, it's worth mentioning, and uh, oh, well, how sad to hear he's no longer with us. Yeah, I know, I know. So let's go through the film. So we're going to go actually go and talk for the film. Uh, please jump in um, uh, to say something. Otherwise, I will just be talking, and it will be irritating for the listeners. <laughs> no problem. Even I'm bored of my own voice. I'm sure everyone else is. Uh, okay, so let's go for the film. Now, obviously, we can't play all the tracks. One because of copyright, although that doesn't normally bother me, but purely for the fact that. Generally, the songs are on for three minutes long. It would be a ridiculously long podcast, and I'd have no feed. So we are going to play the first uh, few bits of the song, and then we'll fade out. And I will be playing the full version of Everybody Needs Somebody to Love after the promos at the end. And if I find uh, Hugh Laurie's uh, version of uh, Minnie the Moochie, <laughs> I, I will put it on. Um, the film starts off with Juliet Jake being woken up and taken to the correction centre, which of course we, is where we see Frank Oz handing over his suit, his, uh, his pants, his uh, prophylactic, and one soiled. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, is that <laughs> now that's a very very nice scene in itself, mm. um, and uh, used again in um, Austin Powers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, whether that's a nod or just a it, it must be. be a nod, I mean, yeah. it's a it's a it's a standard device, I'm sure. But mm. uh, yeah, definitely spotted that <laughs> one. Um, and obviously, it's strange seeing uh, seeing a film like this for the first time. Yeah. Um, after I've seen all these other films. Mm. Oh, right. Okay. Now I see. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty cool thing to do. Now, the Juliet Correction Centre uh, is a, a real prison, still there. And mm. uh, for those uh, geeky fans out there, like like ourselves, uh, who like to go and find these places out, if you are in Chicago, it's at 1125 Collins Street, Juliet, Illinois. There you go. Okay. Um, now, Jake comes out through these huge metal doors. Uh, Elwood turns up uh, in the uh, classic car, which I'm going to talk about in a minute and hug each other and the music kick theme which is the opening theme to the Blues Brothers uh, and this is She Caught the KT Notable uh, thing to say here is that all the music featured in this film, apart from incidental music and the John Lee Hooker track, is all played by the Blues Brothers band. Right. And then that's a cover version that was originally done by Taj Mahal. Now, on the way from jail, Elwood tells Jake that the car they are sitting in is the new Bluesmobile, uh, something Jake is not happy with as it's an old police car. Um, really, I have to say, I love this car. Um, <laughs> I have a scale model of it. Uh, in my uh, office yes yeah I've often looked at it and thought what's that and now you know yes I do it's a bloody good version of it isn't it as well? yes yeah, it's, it's very detailed <laughs> the 118 scale module now this is it's a 1974 and of course I've sat in a replica version of it as well if you remember the archives in times ago um, <laughs> you happy little bunny <laughs> I was so happy it's unbelievable <laughs> if I could find a picture I'll put it on the website and I was really ill that day but you'd never know from, uh, oh, <laughs> going, look at this car smile through the pain 
and it came down from Leeds, I can't um, Leeds, no, all the way from Leeds. All the way from Leeds. Is that Leeds, Illinois? Uh, no, Leeds North. Yeah, okay. Leeds North. North. <laughs> uh, it's a 1974 Dodge Monaco sedan, and the film is described as a used mounted prospect police car. Uh, that replaced a Cadillac, which Elwood had traded in for a microphone, which apparently was perfectly fine. <laughs> the Blues Mobile was equipped with the uh, 440 Magnum squad car package that was offered by Dodge for the Monaco. Its license plate uh, was an Illinois BDR 529. Now, this is a tribute to the Black Diamond Riders of Toronto, Canada, at 529 Jarvis Street. Dan Aykroyd, co-writer of the film, stated that he chose the 440 Dodge Monaco because he considered it to be the hottest car used by police during the 1970s. Now, I believe Dan Aykroyd still owns the car. Really? Well, at least one of the, the cars used in it. Okay. Because he's, he's a huge collector of cars, and he also still has the original Ecto-1 um, car from the Ghostbusters film. Now, that's a cool vehicle. Mm, the old hearse. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. But, yeah, the um, looking through the film, the, the car does seem to be capable of a little more than you would you would think. Yeah, no, no I'm glad you brought that up, really, because <coughs> I, the, the, the scene in which the car flips over backwards and I turn around event, don't say a word, is <laughs> one of the only bits in the film which is obviously total crap um, the rest of it is near enough believable now the, the one of the scenes cut from the film is actually where you see Elwood part of the car in a sub power station that was actually cut out of the original theatrical release um, according to the script the reason why he parks that car and that's where the car gets its almost strange power from to be able to do the ridiculous speeds and, and flips and jumps and all this kind of stuff yeah okay that's that's right up there with um, superheroes being exposed to radiation mm, that kind of which is yeah. of course rubbish <laughs> <laughs> now the um, obviously the stunts in the film are, are, are exceptional the car chases in it uh, the sheer number of cars involved oh yeah oh, is yeah. amazing well they had a 24 hour garbage on set where each car was just put back in again patched up and took straight back out again wow um, the I told you this before because I wanted to let you that know when the speed chase going through Chicago uh, was done early in the morning um, the car notches up 120 miles per hour hmm. which is uh, 190 kilometers per hour and this was actually filmed at that speed which is a testament to the Monaco's police car heritage uh, uh, Landy says they reshot some of the scenes with pedestrians on the sidewalk so viewers could see that the film had not been sped up to create the effect of speed and you can tell that I think there are a couple of filler shots during that sequence which may have been sped up just to just to retain the pace yeah um you know just passing just quick passing shots mm. but you really can tell um one of the first shots where the car shoots by left to right mm. you really can tell it's going that speed it's really very impressive yeah and there's also some of the scenes of well we're um now whether they're on some kind of trailer or something or whether Dan Aykroyd is driving I know Dan Aykroyd does drive a lot of the car in the film obviously some of the high speed chases it's all done by um, by stuntmen but the bit where you, the camera just mounted on the front of the car and you can tell that in it because of all the crap going up and down the side there and the mm. lights it's just too it's just too realistic for them to do that so whether they are on some kind of trailer where he's Dan Aykroyd doing it I couldn't find out <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure someone will tell us but yeah, I, I got a feeling Dan Aykroyd loved driving it anyway because you can see it's it does look like it. John, yes. John Belushi doesn't look like he's enjoying it too much although <laughs> well, that could have been because of the fact that he was off his face on coke a lot of the time during the film yeah I was saying he was looking rather ill at a well, lot of, lots it, of points probably the sunglasses weren't a bad idea no anybody who's read the book wide or indeed seen the film uh, which also stars uh, Michael Chiklis from uh, Fa uh, Fantastic Four 
or The Shield um, TV program we played, John Belushi will know that actually uh, Belushi was in a bit of a bad way during the filming of the Blues Brothers he'd go missing it for hours at a time and hmm. and uh, Dan Ackwood used to have to go and try and find him normally he'd killed up on someone else's sofa um, the film used 13 different cars to depict the blues, uh, Bluesmobile all of which were former police cars purchased from the California Highway Patrol and were mocked up to look like ex-Mount Prospect Illinois police cars some were formatted for speed others for jumps or high performance manoeuvres depending on what was going to happen or implausible high performance manoeuvres yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, now at the time the film's release it held the world record for the most cars destroyed in one film that does make a lot of sense yeah. I thought there were a lot of cars being uh, piled into one another the scene on the uh, the bottom of the um, the, back. Cut, the cutting oh yeah yeah the grass um, queen yeah which is just obviously well all the police cars are now going to drive off there <laughs> Well, it's for no good reason except to create a massive pile, yeah. which is very impressive in itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, it did seem like an awful lot. So a record. Now, yeah. do you know what film beat that record? Um, uh, I'd like to say something like Ronin or yeah. you know, some or um, oh, some of the, one, one of the Bond films would have you'd thought would have a, mm. a lot of crashes, but that was just so many. Mm. It was actually the Blues Brothers two thousand, the sequel that beat his own record. <laughs> <laughs> They just couldn't help themselves. It was probably the only good thing about that film. Mm. <laughs> Although, to be fair, uh, Dan Ackwood and John Goodman is very good, but they did the carnal sin of having a young child in the film. Oh. Ah, and don't yes. worry, I'm not going to subject you to that. No, no, you know, you know about me and young children. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Although my daughter really likes her, does Aww. like it. So. <laughs> uh, no, let's go back to the film. Uh, on the way home, Elwood diverts to their old home at St. Helen of the Blessed Trade, Ormfinich. Uh, this was on in Calumet City, 18th Street at Normal Street. Unfortunately, that building is no longer there. It's all been knocked down. But the, the bit where the car starts to pull in is still there. Oh, right. Obviously, Chicago was uh, was looking pretty derelict to that point. Mm. Uh, they'll have to see the Mother Superior, otherwise known as the Penguin, as we say, played by Kathleen Freeman. Jake obviously doesn't want to go in, but Elwood makes him. Um, they're asked, uh, they're told that the uh, orphanage is going to close down unless they can find five thousand dollars to pay the tax bill. Uh, Jake offers to help, and unfortunately, uh, this doesn't go down too well. And uh, they both end up swearing repeatedly, and are hit quite a few times across the head with a large ruler. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of Catholic guilt happening there. A lot of. <laughs> A, a, a lot of Jesus is suspended all over the place. There's a lot of classes um, with, the, with the Jesus there. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it's a, kind of that office festooned like that, and all of the slapping upon uh, each swear word. Uh, it kind of <laughs> conjures up a lot of things. It conjures up um, episodes of Blackadder where mm. um, Edmund's smacked by uh, by his aunt, um, <laughs> and also reminds me of Father Ted, of course. But yeah, uh, uh, lots of. Yeah, I'm a sucker for some good Catholic guilt. <laughs> yeah, actually, only not long ago, um, the Catholic Church turned around and said that they approve of the film because it's very Catholic. Well, there's a lot of standing there's a lot of up, good meaning a lot in the film, singing. Um, yeah, yeah, not really Catholic. That's more um, Baptist, isn't it? I should think. <laughs> Yes, everything that probably the Catholic Church isn't. Unless you're Catholic, then fair enough. Thank you for listening. See you later. Okay, um, <laughs> they're phone. They're phone out of the uh, the office and down the stairs, and then met on the floor. Great stunt as well with a stuntman in that chair, by the way. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. I thought, now that 
No, I don't think I'd like to try that at all. No. No, just get in as basically a standard school bench. Yeah, I should think that one was probably made of plywood. Mm. Mm. But even so, that did look rather painful. Yeah, and he would have had some padding, obviously, because John Belushi's a big fella. Yeah. (laughs) You only have to see animal house for that. Uh, They're met by Curtis at the bottom of the stairs, played by Cap Calloway. Now, Curtis is dressed in similar clothing to Jake and Elwood. And now I'm going to bore you sensitive with some very geeky... (laughs) Jimmy facts about the clothing because I know people do like this and and everyone I dressed up as um, the Blues Brothers when I was at school for the first ever one of the first ever comic reliefs and oh, it was a charity right. fun one and I went me and a, a friend at school went as uh, the Blues Brothers and so uh, who was who I was our one because at that point I was tall and thin oh. <laughs> now now I'm more John uh, <laughs> okay so the hats are black fedora not pork pie hats as some say the sunglasses are classics now this is the difference. Jake wears a pair of Ray-Ban 5022C15 sunglasses, a.k.a. Wayfarer ones. Okay. Uh, these are the ones with brown frames and black lenses. Now, genuine 5022 Ray-Bans, of course, have that 5022 written on the sides. Yeah. Elwood wears a pair of Wayfarer 2 sunglasses. Okay. These are the black frames and black lenses, again, uh, with the 5022 written on the sign. Now, Curtis tells Jake that uh, they both should get wise and go to the Chipper Rock Baptist Church. This is actually the Pilgrim Baptist Church, a just 3235 East 91st Street in Chicago. Still there. Still going. Yeah, still there. Uh, Baptist um, Church, probably still as noisy and raucous as well. <laughs> and it is, I think if that was what churches like, more people would go, I think. Well, I mean, yeah, full gospel Baptist churches do tend to be yeah, pretty similar to that. Mm. I think there's fewer cartwheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's some quite hot women in that as well, I must notice. Well, you know. Oh, Presumably they're all probably dancers, obviously, and not just... <laughs> Not just parishioners. Yes, not just parishioners. <laughs> not them very attractive. Uh, okay, so the <laughs> now the reverend for this, of course, is James Brown, and let's hear James Brown's song. Wake up! Wake up! Don't be lost when you can't go. Don't be lost when you can't go. By the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. So a light, uh, as uh, James Brown is singing his song, uh, a light shines down on Jake and he has an epiphany. Uh, they have to go and get the band back together and off they go. But on the way, Elwood is pulled over for going through a red light. A computer check shows he's in violation of his licence and instead of getting out, Elwood puts his foot down and a chase ensues. Yeah. Uh, they go through the Dixie Squall... A squall? The Dixie... Squall. A squirrel? A squall? <laughs> squirrel? They go through a squirrel. Stormy uh, <laughs> squirrel going on there. Uh, they go through Dixie Square Moor address. 15201 Dixie Highway, Harvey, Illinois. Now, this location still exists, but Dixie Square Moor is the a defunct shopping mall still. <laughs> it, was, right. it was defunct then. Apparently, it's been abandoned for over 25 years, and it's almost twice as long as it was in business. Wow. So it's just standing there it's empty. Standing there empty. I wonder yeah. if people, if people drive through there. No, I have a suspicion it's probably got bollards on there just to stop people from doing that and trying to find out if there's a Miss Piggy available. Mm, bollards. <laughs> um, it, it did remind me of um, uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yes. In that, oh, it, it, had, it had that American, you know, classic mm. American mall feeling yeah. about it. Uh, okay, so once I've escaped the police, and it's a good chase for that, isn't it? Oh, you yeah. know. 
pretty awesome and as far as all the smashing up of mm. is concerned. I mean, um, you look at it and you think, okay, well, you know, let's just suspend <laughs> suspend reality for a moment and work out that all of those shop windows and everything there was put up simply to be knocked right down mm. again. Yeah, they obviously went to a lot of effort and glee doing that. Yeah, um, as I said, the police are really crap at driving, going around in circles on a painted floor. Well, yeah, I mean the oversteer. <laughs> being demonstrated on those police cars is shocking. Somebody ought to sort that out. Uh, if you go to the Palisades in Birmingham and go to the bottom, uh, the bottom bit, not the old bottom bit, but the second level, just before you got the escalators to go out, there's a Pierre One Imports on the right hand side. And every time I went past, I go Pierre One Imports. <sighs> no one ever got the joke. Was that, was that just product placement or something? Or? I think it was just popular shops. I mean, Oldsmobile was a really popular shop, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And obviously with the 1980. Yeah, 80s old, that dated slightly. Really, that answered my question as to, hang on, when did this come out? Yeah, filmed in 1979 as well. And the funny thing is that uh, Birmingham Palisades has uh, a similar amount of smashed glass right yes, now. Yes, hence, for the re- hence the reason why we had, a, we had a podcast late. Thank you, Rioters of England. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Not only did you upset a load of people's businesses and was and uh, and have been labelled rightly so wankers, <laughs> um, you, you put a podcast out, so all the good listeners... Those are the people to blame. <laughs> that, and unfortunately, yes. I had to go to a funeral. It's society's uh, fault. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, once they've escaped the police, they head to Elwood's Hotel, which was the Plymouth Hotel, a dingy hole, to say the least. Now, that's what those hotel rooms were like. Uh, that one has actually now been knocked down, uh, but they were all like that. Oh, I've, <laughs> I've stayed in a hotel like that before. Well, really, well, a... really, you could just put your arms out and touch the side of the wall. Yep, Backpackers Hostel in Newquay. Really? Yeah, I think it was about £12 a night. Well, it's quite expensive, really. Well, yeah. I'd have slept in the toilet. Just to share with about 12 people as well. How nice. Comfortable? No. Not even on top of them? No. It was this kind of surf shack place with the shower just completely full of sand. Mm. You know where that sand had come from as well. To be fair, remember what we were talking about earlier on about my old flat and what was in that bath? Yeah. (laughs) Moving on. Um, Yeah, if you want to win a prize, uh, (laughs) yes. Um, Now, John Candy pops up here in a cameo uh, where the police officers uh, turn up to come and arrest them. Uh, Nice surprise for John Candy there. Yeah, exactly. As we said I mean, earlier on, I mean, he's greatly missed, you know. Oh, definitely. It's always good to see him. I mean, you know, what a dingy hotel with uh, lacking facilities like that needs is some uh, some pillows. Some pillows, yeah. <laughs> I know it's one thing that really does date this film is John Candy's clothes, you know. White shoes Ooh. in Blanchard and almost like a tweed check jacket. It's pretty bad. Uh, it's 1980. We're on the, we're on the cusp. We're all confused. We don't know what we're supposed to wear. Is it bell bottoms or is it neon? We just don't know. There's a lot of neon in this film. (laughs) Now, uh, unfortunately for all of them, a mysterious woman turns up, played by Carrie Fisher. Uh, Now, she blows up the hotel. Uh, Well, at first she tries to blow up with a rocket launcher. Uh, yeah. You know, hits the wall, but they just get up and walk off. She then blows up the whole hotel. Yeah. And uh, again, they just get off and brush the bricks off. I love the sound of the bricks. Down. I think the Foley artist on that he's, has done a really good job because the sound of the bricks coming down and, and brushing them off the shoulder, I think he's excellent. Oh, it's superb. Yeah. But the little nod to that, the way Albert just looks down and, and punches his hat through and says, Come on, we've got to go to work. <laughs> and then you actually see him go to work. Now, when he says, We've got to go to work, that scene afterwards will then cut straight to the woman's house where they go to see if those the bandmates are still living there oh okay so yeah so it would have been a complete non sequitur at the time mm. oh. uh, it's a bit, uh, a bit unusual so anyway uh, what happens is they brush the bricks off 
And the police, of course, do the same. Uh, it's this point now where um, Jake and Elwood go in search of the band. Uh, Elwood leaves his job at the glue factory. Glue. Uh, this is glue. <laughs> this is glue. It's glue, by the way. <laughs> as you mentioned. And the first place they go to is uh, Miss Talentino's house to find out if any of the band members are there. Of course, they're not. Uh, but just as leaving, uh, she finds a card with the words Murph and the Magic Tones on and where they're playing. <laughs> uh, they go to see Murph and the Magic Tones. Uh, playing at the Holiday Holiday Inn, not the Holiday Inn Express, no, the Holiday, Holiday Inn. Inn, which is no longer not the Holiday Inn. Uh, and this is, of course, where they find Murph, uh, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, Willie Hall, uh, Murph, and they they are playing uh, uh, some terrible music. To be fair, mm. don't you go changing? Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> which is awful. Anyway, they have a chat with them and they sign them up, and then they are sent off to find Mister Fabulous working as the mate of at the Shade Paul restaurant. In this scene, you see Paul Vumins, uh, better well known as Pee Wee Herman. Uh, Jake and Elwood convince Mister Fabulous uh, to come with them. Now they convince him. How do they convince him to come with them? <laughs> um, by behaving <laughs> um, like uh, with Noel and I. Yes. Um, which again makes me makes me think somehow. Well, okay, posh establishment, people behaving mm-hmm. in an uncouth manner. Um, I, I I don't think I don't think there's any kind of homage going on there, but it it, it, it did appeal mm. in that same way. And you know, there's some you good know. food throwing in that scene. I think uh, accurate yes. food throwing as well. <laughs> um, I wonder how many takes that took. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do I do love the way the little girl is looking at that. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Jake to them can sell me your children. Why do buy your children? <laughs> Interesting. Mm. I'm not sure you'd have that line in a modern day film, would you? <laughs> Especially as he's doing it in an Arab accent. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, screw you, political quickness. Yeah. Who needs you? <laughs> and what big pawns? My eyes <laughs> in that bowl. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> So Mr. Fabulous does agree to go there because uh, Jake turns around and says that he and his brother will go, uh, will come to Shape Hall for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. Mm. So anyway, they go off to find the remaining members and Jake and Elwood come across a rally of the Illinois Nazis. Uh, the Blues Brothers um, here. Hey? <laughs> yeah. Any particular reason? Well, I think it's a, a nod to the fact that um, there was a lot of, um, obviously, unrest in America at that point. And I think they... Could they have got away with just having the Klu Klux Klan there in big hoodie jackets? Probably not, really. Um, but... Because also, the joke wouldn't have been as good because, you know... So they want to set up an, another villain besides the police. It's getting to all to do with Catholics, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, it, that's, that's not just for saying that I must point out that's in the film where, uh, where they turn around and say and he's a Catholic <laughs> which is a strange line but I wouldn't for any of our American cousins listening it's Adolf it's Adolf it isn't Adolf mm. Adolf it isn't hyphenated not many kids called Adolf these days I think it's due for revival. A lot of other people think that as well, well but in slightly different ways. It, isn't it? Richard Henning wore it for a while. Yeah, and the president of Belarus is still wearing it. Yeah, Chaplin. Mm. You know, but then again, some could say Hitler mobbed it from Chaplin. It wasn't very funny, was it? Mind you, he was Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, diverting back to the thing. And there's some horrible Illinois Nazis, and they are a horrible piece of work. I like the way they do deliberately try and make them very, almost very, very stern you know Stormtrooper style oh, I don't yeah. mean Star Wars Stormtrooper I mean <laughs> German uh, yeah I just, I, I just 
with the little really, wine glasses. Really the... taken aback by that. <laughs> it's that it was the genuinely the last thing I expected mm. to see. But um, I like the I like the fact that uh, Elwood uh, puts his foot there by saying we hate Illinois Nazis. I presume they hate all Nazis uh, and just run them off the bridge. Other Nazis are available. <laughs> yeah, find them in the phone book. Um, how on earth though, Winnie? Because Reprocure get me the license plate. How? Yes, look up over the <laughs> over the bridge, the bridge. <laughs> over into uh, <laughs> Poland. No, sorry, over into. Uh... <laughs> 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 There's no better Nazi than a thwarted one. I no, find. no. Political history, uh, ladies and gentlemen, live on Waffle Art. <laughs> so, of course, this is another group of people that are after him. So now we have um, the uh, police, we have John Candy, uh, and we now also have the Nazis. A good yeah. group of people to be chasing you, I think. Well, certainly, mm. yes. Um, well, I mean, cars are crap, but. <laughs> <laughs> now, once the Bluesmobile makes his way down Maxwell Street, um, it's a wonderful looking street actually uh, Maxwell Street still exists but not in the, the form we see in the Blues Rivers mm. um, it's full of like interesting stores of selling crap um, soul tapes blues tapes reggae tapes uh, it does look like I mean some great looking food on those you know oh. the stores the sausages and the burgers and the, the uh, you know the, the, oh, they're called um, chili dogs oh. and all that and Polish sausage well um Yes, presumably the Nazis haven't got there yet. <laughs> no, no, obviously they hadn't taken over Poland yet. No, uh, but it did look good. I, I was, I was half expecting to see our old friend Roger Moore. Oh, in a safari suit. In a safari suit. Or in his, his long, his long uh, um, coat, standing yes. out, looking for the Filio of Soul restaurant. <laughs> I like some information. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> I'm just looking at Roger Moore as well. <laughs> yes, sorry, I've got Roger Moore, Roger, staring. Roger Moore staring at us with his, uh, with his nice hair. Anyway, on uh, Maxwell Street, jamming away is legendary uh, blues singer John Lee Hooker singing this track. <laughs> Red down, red all for your feet. Take you home with me, put you in my house. Now this is actually another uh, extra scene. Uh, the boom, boom, boom uh, uh, song, probably too many booms in that, um, was actually cut down. And what we saw is the extended version where you see the guy to me saying, no, you didn't write that. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. <laughs> and if you listen closely, you can hear that all the way through the later scene in the background. Right. You're just slightly, slightly found in the background. Uh, now, they go inside the Soul Food Cafe. Jake orders uh, three fried chickens and a Coke. Is it four fried chickens? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's four. Four fried chickens. I remember and that Coke. Um, no. Back to it. Uh, yeah, they walk into the uh, Sulfur Cafe where uh, Jake orders four fried chickens and a Coke. That's a lot of chicken. That's a lot of chicken. Lot of chicken. And Elwood orders a slice of white bread toasted. Two slices of white bread toasted. No drinks, no butter. Why? Well, they don't say jelly, do they? I always thought America called jam jelly. And, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the woman who takes this is soul legend Aretha Franklin. And she goes into the kitchen to tell her husband, Matt Murphy, and second cook Lou Marini that, uh, what they're going to order. And they both know straight away it's Jake and Elwood. And they both rush out 
This is where Jake tells them that he wants to put the band back together. Now, uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, Miss Murphy, Mrs. Murphy, is not happy about this at all. I mean, Elwood explains they on a mission from God. She shouts out, don't you blaspheme in here. Don't you blaspheme in here. Uh, Matt tells her to shut up, woman. I'm the man. And Aretha Franklin breaks, uh, breaks out into her hit think. Brilliant rendition of Think. Superb. Yeah. Brilliantly choreographed. Um, brilliantly sung, of course. Yeah. Now, if you're going to get somebody to sing that, Aretha Franklin's Yule. Now, um, uh, John Landis was actually um, one of the criticisms that came through this film was the fact that he cuts off Blue Lou Marini's head during the, the bit where he's, on, he's playing his saxophone on the counter. If you notice, you just see his legs going backwards and forwards. And occasionally yeah. he's just like, I don't think that's a criticism because you've got. The dance group, you've also got Jake and Elwood dance. You've got Aretha Franklin singing. You've got the three backing, which is, which is, I think was Aretha Franklin's actual backing singers. And you've got the other diners in there. Hmm. It's not really much chance to do a whole large shot, a wide shot, when you know you're in a small cafe. No, there's, that's There's no true. way of getting around, I don't think. I suppose. I don't, I don't know if it's just, uh, it wouldn't have been somebody else doing it. No, 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 no. No, he uh, no, was him, because apparently he was also slightly miffed Lou Marini was. Oh, dear. He didn't get to see him. But there again, you can't, you can't please anyone. Anyway, Matt agrees to go, and both Blue and Matt leave, and the band is complete. All they have to do now is go and get some instruments. And they go to Ray's Music Exchange. Um, this is where we get to see Ray Charles. There's a brilliant little um, scene in which he shoots a gun at a, <laughs> at a child. Yeah. Great, um, and Ray Charles is fantastic yeah, in this. Damn your um, political correctness. <laughs> and he's, he's fabulous, and um, yeah, obviously prepared to have a bit of a laugh because mm. he pops up later putting up that poster upside down. Upside down, down yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great, a great Which I think is a, is a great sport, although whether he knew about that, <laughs> we won't know. No. no. Uh, but it's a brilliant scene, uh, one of my favourite scenes in the film, and uh, this is with the whole band and Ray Charles on keyboard and singing Do Shake a Tail Feather. I've got the fella you've been dancing with all over the neighbourhood So why didn't you ask me, baby? Or didn't you think I could? Another great bit of choreography on that one. I just think it's awesome. And I think uh, uh, Kevin Smith does a little tribute to that in Clark's too. Okay. We know that they're, they're um, dancing to ABC. Um, love. I mean, I just think that scene is is brilliant. And as why we explained earlier on with the, the just the occasional strange-looking white tramp in the dancing. Probably not a tramp, but um, it just seems a bit weird. But he's all everyone's joining in, and it is of course now one of those songs that are played all over the place. And yeah, that's true. The, uh, now the brothers arrange a meeting um, uh, but first they need to play a gig and so Jake impromptu announces they are playing at Bob's Country Bunker Bob's Country Bunker is actually 20th Century Fox ground that's okay. where that was um, and even Elwood looks shocked <laughs> when they're going to play <laughs> they arrive at Bob's Country Bunker quite clearly not a blues place saying they are the good old boys 
which of course again I would look slightly shocked and they get a couple of free beers now the crowd is ready for a good show but the first song they play which is I Can't Turn You Lose their opening number does not go down too well at all and they are immediately shut down Elwood and uh, Duck Dunn quickly think and come up with the idea of playing the theme tune from the uh, TV series Rawhide which starred I don't, I don't know I don't like cowboys Clint Eastwood oh okay <laughs> okay it was, uh, yeah, yeah sorry you should have just said name a cowboy name a cowboy <laughs> John Wayne no you fool yeah <laughs> TJ Hooker <laughs> no Shatner <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no Shatner today uh, no they sing Vorhead and then sing on uh, Stand By Your Man which, goes, which also goes down very well uh, now unfortunately a miscommunication between them and Bob uh, means they are to be charged for the beer now they was going to get $200 for the gig but they've drank $300 worth of beer which means they owe of course $100 they go outside and watch should pull up but the good old boys wagon now what I can't work out here is they've obviously played through to the end of the night mm. um, in true Father Ted style they've obviously just kept playing Rawhide like in the disco in Father Ted they'd just play Ghost Town by the special yeah. all night <laughs> um, but what's not clear to me at this point is where the good old boys have been at this time because they've just arrived late mm. for no good reason. So presumably they might have been stuck up in a traffic jam in a mall. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> they've got detained Maybe by the Nazis. Maybe that old bluesmobile. Yeah, and the Nazis have taken over. You know, <laughs> use their camper van for the night. Uh, anyway, hmm. um, right. So the uh, <laughs> they turn up and Jake pretends off in the union and tells them to stand there. And he goes over to Bob to say he's going to write a check. Of course, he <laughs> needs to see in the car yes. write the cheque on a dashboard with a pencil <laughs> and drive off so of course they drive off and they then get chased by the uh, good old boys in their uh, in their um, shag wagon and um, and with Bob in there going through and as they're driving along they drive past a poster a billboard sign saying uh, see you next Wednesday do you know the link? no is it like a band night reference or something? this is a, a film that was done by John Landis. It's not actually a real film, but that poster shows up in every John, well, near on every John Landis film, oh, okay. including American Wealth in London, which is, of course, what the cinema is. That's what it's playing when they go in there. Oh. And then the guy goes, Hello, David. And he's half decomposing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the police car that originally chased him pulls out and smashes straight into the, uh, into the uh, good old boy's wagon and causes a bit of mayhem. So now we have the police. We have uh, John Candy, we have the Nazis, and we have the good old boys, and of course Bob, who's chasing them just for a hundred dollars. Yeah, and we're coming up to the point where all of these people are after them, mm. and none of them seem remotely capable of doing anything about it. I mean, okay, it's a, it's a bit of a comedy of errors going on here, but it's like, oh, somebody, just somebody, you know, yeah. nobody can the police them. police camera actor? Um, we've not seen uh, uh, what's his name, Sheriff Burnell on America's Light TV cop chases. He has amazingly white TV, does Sheriff Burnell. I'm Sheriff Burnell. Check it out on YouTube. Uh, anyway, now the Blues Brothers blackmail their old booking agent uh, into securing them a large gig performed at the Palace Hotel Ballroom, located 106 miles, which is 171 kilometres, north of Chicago. <clears throat> they all go on a huge advertising campaign, which brings them all uh, to the notice of course to the police the Nazis and the good old boys and as you mentioned uh, there's a, a cab Calloway's character Curtis he's getting all the kids to hang out flyers mm. the Blues Brothers rob a tannoy system uh, well not a tannoy system but a large speaker mm. tannoy is of course to make yes uh, that on mash not long ago uh, <laughs> and uh, of course um, Ray Charles puts the poster upside down oh and Aretha Franklin's character puts it on up in the ring shaking oh. her head going <laughs> you boys <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing I mean uh, 
the the film obviously runs on an awful lot of goodwill. Yeah, um, you know, nothing is going to stop them from getting well, I, to I, the end of this. You know, nothing is going to stop them playing. No, nah. and to be fair, they don't even do a cliffhanger. Um, in 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 the sense that in the sense that somebody catches them and yeah. uh, holds them, yeah, they they just you know they just end up stuck mm. in that, that petrol station out of their own yeah. I mean, poor I, judgment. I, I think there was a nice bit there where the fa- all, I think all the goodwill's coming on because it's the kids hanging out the flies and it becomes apparent what they're actually doing the gig for. They're not doing the gig for their own their own pockets. They are doing it to save the orphanage where they grew up. And mm. even the band don't know. And it's not until they're on stage at uh, Cab Calloway or Curtis turns around and tells them what they're there for. They didn't know. Hmm. And suddenly it all comes in. Now, of course, um, the band get to the ballroom and pay up, but the Blues Brothers, as you just said, get stuck at the gas station. And this is where, for some strange reason, Twiggy turns up. In a very nice eater. And $94 for a tank of gas. And it a still wouldn't be $94 today. No. Although probably at the time for England, that was probably about the correct I suppose it would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. Curse you, Americans, and your cheap gasoline. <laughs> yes, no. Now, the ballroom uh, gets totally filled up. They've really done well on selling this. And uh, this is actually the Hollywood Palladium and was later seen in uh, a great film called Galaxy Quest. If you okay. Galaxy, yeah, that's actually where they, they did the convention. It's been used for various sort of things. Of course, a lot of bands play there now. Now, the, the, the guests, the, uh, the audience, obviously become quite restless. And Curtis gets the band to play his old number, or Cab Carlo's old number. Mini the Mucho. As we said earlier on, a brilliant uh, rendition of that with Cab Calloway in his old traditional jazz gear <laughs> and the band doing the, you know, the old the old 50s style. Great stuff. Now the crowd are excited and finally the Blues Brothers get to the gig, not before, of course, sabotaging the, uh, the good old boys wagon with... Oh, hang on, I know this. It's glue. <laughs> Strong stuff. Strong stuff. stuff. <laughs> Well, they break into the uh, ballroom because obviously now at this point uh, it's full of police. Uh, John Candy sits down and orders some orange whip. And, and then, by the way, he gets a trooper, just a casual trooper to go get him. Yeah, you can even give me any money. <laughs> oh, God. God, God. Oh, dear. But just John Candy for you. No wonder he's a bit big. And then he sits down and says, I haven't heard them play. I haven't heard them play yet. And he's obviously Which, laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who has heard them play? I've been checking. They've only done Bob's Country Bunker so far. Yeah. I'm amazed how many times I'm really glad you've had so few drinks that you can keep saying Bob's Country Bunker yeah, yeah, no. this is why we only had that one point in the pub earlier on uh, so um, the crowd are excited obviously they're all getting a bit annoyed and suddenly the Blues Brothers turn up they manage to get on stage to their opening track which is Can't Turn You Loose Jake does a somersault uh, what you see there is how they always used to come on stage with Elwood holding the briefcase up which is chained uh, with a handcuff to there ah. they undo it he takes his harmonica out hmm. and the crowd, the crowd remain eerily silent I'm amazed by that crowd because um there probably must have come a point mm. in cinema history where you'd have just CGI'd most of that crowd. Yeah. 
Um, and I wonder where the cutover point was, just in making films, where you where you don't need 500 extras. Well, I mean, when you think about it as well, if you look at the original Star Wars, um, there's, a, there's a quite a few scenes where they cut to a load of stormtroopers and William after Han Solo. And they're quite clearly, it's just a board of like painted stormtroopers on. And even in the <laughs> scene where at the end of it, the medal's been hand- handed out, they are all just cardboard cutouts. You know, so, so if, you know, and that was that. I mean, so, and this is a full crowd of people, and, and the camera pans oh, yeah. around. There's no, there's no seats short or anything like that. And that obviously is, you know, the crew, everyone, families, friends, Saturday Night Live members, guests, or whoever. Mm. Um, it takes a lot of wrangling, a crowd that size, that, doesn't yeah. it? Now, Elwood Counts Down, they're breaking to probably the most well known Blues Brothers song, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. Now, I'm going to play the first couple of, little, you know, seconds of this, but we will play, as we said, the full version of this song after the promo. So it's a great song that is everybody needs somebody to love, and it's the extended version of that as well. We've able to do a little bit more extra, uh, which no. I noticed earlier on. Uh, the crowd goes absolutely wild, uh, not an immediate, almost like an immediate build-up of silence, and it's suddenly like, Yay! yes, there we go, we like this one. <laughs> Stand up and think. Maybe, maybe that happens in America. I'm not sure. I mean, I know in cinemas people do whoop and cheer. In England, of course, I get annoyed by someone eating popcorn. Yes. Why, why popcorn? Have silent foods, yeah, jelly silent babies, food. uh, marshmallows, marshmallows, jelly babies, olives, hot dogs, but just sucking it in. <laughs> and with that image, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now uh, the, obviously the crowd goes extre- uh, extremely mad, and they're rather enjoying it, and they want the next song, which is uh, "Sweet Home Chicago." <laughs> Another brilliant track, and there's some great bass lines going on that, and some great dancing. Now, as the band play, and I love the little nod as well that uh, they go, um, they look up at John Candy, John Candy does that point at them. And it's like <laughs> so kind of like winking, it's brilliant. Now, the band continue to play. Jake and I would give a, a, a guy who turned up to says he's going to manage them some money, obviously, you must trust him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they get he gives him an advance of something, what is it, $20,000 to mm-hmm. give them? 
I think it was 20,000. 20, yeah, yeah. well, I'm a decent chunk of money. Oh, it could be 10 then. Uh, they make sure Ray is paid off and Ray's music exchange gives the rest of the band the money and they've got the money to go to Counter Cook to play it off. So they escape behind the drum riser and as they get down there, a, 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 I think it's an M40, isn't it? goes off. And there's Carrie Fisher once again trying to shoot and try and kill her. Again, and Carrie Fisher, obviously having been to the Stormtrooper School of Marksmanship. <laughs> yeah, even when she's shooting on the ground, she hits the briefcase full up. Yeah. Right, that would have pissed him off if you'd shot for the money. End of film. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, oh, for Rocket heaven's, launcher, for heaven's bomb, sake. flamethrower, next to the petroleum. <laughs> yeah, I think that's been the subject of Mythbusters, hasn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. Can you do that? Can you, can you blow it all and also survive, which quite clearly you can. <laughs> <laughs> and now, uh, although there was a lot of taking off in a police box, which I'm sure somebody else has definitely Bill had that Ted. idea before. Yes, police box and of course Bill and Ted with the telephone box. Indeed. So anyway, uh, Carrie Fisher <laughs> turns out that this was the woman that Jake was about to marry, but jilted her at the altar. The bastard, and she is after revenge for her family, her father, and uh, the seven limousines that came to pick them up. But what I like is the fact that Elwood didn't know anything about it. So he's sitting there, <laughs> what's going on here? Why was my best man? He's wondering. Quite possibly, and then, uh, <laughs> and then he simply drops to his knees, begs for forgiveness, shows the worst his, excuse in whatever. Shows um, his drug-addled eyes. His tyres broke. <laughs> He, he ran. He was on. He missed the plane. His tuxedo was at the cleaners. Um, lo- locusts, locusts, <laughs> a flood. He may as well have said the sea monster came. Yeah, and as you say, he takes off his glasses with those puppy dog eyes. Ah, but yes, again, you know, uh, disbelief entirely suspended at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Jake kisses her and then drops her in the mud when Alva just goes take it easy and then they say the classic line which is it's 106 miles to Chicago we've got a full tank of gas half a pack of cigarettes it's dark and we're wearing sunglasses hit it I've seen that quote yeah on posters and yeah. so forth I had a t-shirt when I was reading <sighs> but I, I just thought there'd been a greater build up to it or um, or it would have come at some kind of crescendo point it, it, it just felt flat to oh, me oh really it just like I don't know it, it's one of those things oh and th- and this must be the oh and that, that, that's the line mm. just there it you know, I didn't, think, I think didn't it have works. a lot of resonance to it but then again it's you know a 30 year old film and mm. I think in terms of laying in catchphrases and, and you know and really decisive words and measures in any other film I think we've come a long way yeah yeah um, what you'd have probably done now is have a bit more stirring music Behind that, yeah, it would be a bit harder. I can see that this film is really based around blues music and Sam and Dave and mm. all that. But yeah, um, I was just a bit surprised at the delivery. Oh right, okay. Yeah. I think you're wrong. Go on then. <laughs> now they head back to Chicago, of course, with uh, dozens of state and local police and the good old boys, the Nazis. In a minute, uh, the Nazis Candy. aren't the good old boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what you call Nazis. <laughs> no, that's not good old men that country. Um, now uh, Jake and Elwood eventually elude them all with the most amazing car chase. Uh, now this, as we said earlier, on was the longest car chase uh, with speeds just crazy. Um, John Candy's car. 
car 55 ends up in the back of the back of a wagon a uh, nice way to end there which is just a mad you get pile-ups you get um, just crashes cars flipped upside down uh, only one time do you actually see a wooden plank which obviously launches the cars mm. and it's quite clear broken up now they uh, on their way the police radio tells the Illinois Nazis that they are of course now heading back into Chicago mm. one thing I do like is the the, the police announcer turns around and says unnecessary use of violence has been approved in the apprehension of the Blues Brothers unnecessary violence <laughs> <laughs> sounds like one of Cameron's speeches doesn't yeah. it <laughs> yes if only they if, if they said that and the BBC News David Cameron has announced that unnecessary violence has been approved in the apprehension of rioters in England. That's what most people were calling for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be unnecessarily nasty to these people. Yes, let's just batter them. Yes. <laughs> and why not? Anyway, um, they, they, they managed to get rid of the Illinois Nazis by one. Um, one just crashes, and then <laughs> the car was a ridiculous flip, and the Nazis' car, the Ford Pinto, drives off the bridge, rises up in the air for a bit, harvers and then drops down I do like the line I've always loved you that was rather nice it's David Gibson's face what yeah. <laughs> let's take a bit more dignity out of the Nazis <laughs> while we're at it but yeah that was strange uh, it, it reminded me of um, it reminded me of Greece in a way you know the, sci- the sci-fi bit at the end of Greece where you, you, know, you suddenly you know, all bets are off now mm. yeah. um, the, uh, the, the death of them is um, the car plummets to earth now uh, the production actually did drop a Ford Pinto, uh, which is the one driven by the Nazis, from a helicopter at an altitude of more than a mile and had to gain special airworthiness certificate from the Federal Aviation Administration to do it. The FAA was concerned, of course, that the car could prove too aerodynamic in high altitude drop and pose a threat to nearby buildings. Of course, it didn't. It landed dead on cue. It was very clever, actually, because um, what it did is it stayed body side up. Mm during the fall yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah you, you would have expected it to tip forward with, yeah, you know, or start to with the weight of the like, engine or mm. something like that but no it was a really good drop um, it must be for Pindos must be good for uh, real drops yeah and there must be a good weight distribution mm. as well what's more ridiculous is that when the car goes through the, the, the ground the second Nazi car drives on top of it and the Bluesmobile can actually jump over that by if you notice off the, off the gas into the brake and I'm back on the, uh, the gas again I must remember that that would be otherwise known as they are uh, doing bunny jumps. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, fast forward a few years, I think Michael Knight would call that turbo boost. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jake and I would finally do arrive at the Richard J. Daly Centre, where the Bluesmobile, unfortunately, literally falls to pieces. Like a clown car. Yeah, like a clown car. And Elwood does look really upset. They rush inside the adjacent Chicago City Hall building, soon followed by hundreds of police, state troopers, SWAT teams, which always makes you laugh the way they're all going, hut, hut, hut. Um, firefighters the Illinois National Guardsmen and of course the military police they find the uh, oh the lift when they get in the lift they're going up yes and I'm sure I'm sure that scene has been recreated it's been done in The Simpsons a few times okay it's, I, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll get a few mm. more eagle eyed spotters who will tell us yeah a few more of those uh a few more films where you've had lift hold music in the <laughs> middle of a frantic uh, yeah, a game going on. And it is quite a lot of people going up those stairs. So it's quite a, and that's what you call extras. 
Yes. Right? They weren't paying off love. <laughs> now, they finally do get uh, to the office of the Cane Cookie Assessor. Of course, he's on his dinner break. Come back in five minutes. Must be so <laughs> annoying. And they do eventually get in and pay the bill to a certain Mr. Steven Spielberg. Now, this is 1979, so I think they'd probably just done the film 1941, and this is just before filming Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. So, mm. yes, it wasn't the most obvious... Yeah, I mean, you didn't recognise it all, did you? Well, no, no, but mm. I wasn't expecting. I was picking out so many other great cameos in the mm. in the show. Really. Uh, now, just as about to get a receipt, uh, they are arrested, and there's a huge crowd of all of the officers pointing guns at them. Uh, the next scene then goes on to the entire band in prison, playing to the audience of prisoners the classic uh, song "Jailhouse Rock." And that's where the uh, film ends. Now, it's uh, interesting note that we'll say here, the original release was 133 minutes long, uh, but the 20th anniversary one that we've just watched was 148 minutes. The two delete, main deleted scenes was Elwood in his workplace and, of course, the scene showing the Bluesmobile being parked in the substation, and that's where he gets his power. So there you go. Now we have an MP3 to play. Now, Simon, if you want me to come on the show, you don't have to take these kind of drastic steps. All you have to do is ask... Now, sending me emails threatening to use your upcoming appearance on Just a Minute with Nicholas Parsons in some ridiculous attempt at uh, proving once and for all that Rosa Mars is nothing but a Dennis Roussos album played backwards. And while everybody knows that most Dennis Roussos choruses go for at least four hours, so, you know, I was hoping nobody was going to notice. That's just not right, okay? You don't need to threaten it. All you need to do is say, Stefan, I'd like you to come on the show. I'd like you to make a comment. That's all you have to do. Okay. And, and, and while we're at it, right, my debris, I've been to the doctor, and my debris is never going to recover. Now, I'm going to be, for the rest of my life, waking up in a cold, cold sweat in the middle of the night with my debris mega throbbing, and that's just it. That's, 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 and it's all your fault. Mind you, on the plus side, apparently, I no longer need a bed lamp. So, there you go. <sighs> Amazing what you can do in the dark. Now, Simon, we're talking about a much more serious topic today, despite your threats. Uh, we're talking about the very serious topic of the Blues Brothers. I love the Blues Brothers. I mean, hey, who doesn't love the Blues Brothers? I mean, what's not to love about the Blues Brothers? You have explosions, you have cars, you have you know cars piling up, you have great music. So... Everyone has to love the Blues Brothers, but there are specific reasons why I think the Blues Brothers is particularly, uh, particularly cool, and that is it. It's really takes a very different comedic view. Uh, you know, you, you, when you open up in the movie, you sort of you know what you t- you t- okay yes, there is the church scene and there's you know everything that happens in the church, you know, and the band and everything. But really, the first moment in this movie where you get that that sense that this is going places where nobody has gone before. It's the moment where 
you see Carrie Fisher getting out of the car, pulling out a bazooka, and blowing the crap out of a building, purely and simply to get back at Jake. Well, that's that's love for you. I mean, that's that's true love. Love is where you're prepared to pull the bazooka. However, the thing is that while there are these outrageous moments, you have these larger-than-life characters, you know... Uh, Nazi type extremists you have more police than you can poke a stick at chasing after them. Jake and Elwood are, are pretty much oblivious to everything that goes on and, and in the comedy kind of just surrounds these two. They're in a bubble. You know, they, they they walk through the movie as if you know what, they're walking through your average cash and carry and just to pick up a packet of fags. That's pretty much how they, they treat this movie. And that I think is it's great acting. It's great writing. Um, you know, it, it's such a different concept. But the other way in which I think the Blues Brothers takes uh, deviates from most other comedy uh, sort of setups and comedy movies is the fact that on the one hand uh, you have these crazy, funny things that are happening, but on the other hand they take the music so damn seriously. And I mean, hey, you know what? It, it'd take a pretty brave man not to take James Brown seriously. I mean, you know, you wanted to send up James Brown, well, you'd be a braver man than me. Um, or Ray Charles, or any of those guys. I mean, look, we're talking really the best of the best uh, on the blue scene in this movie. Um, there's there's not a single, you know, non-grade A act. Well, maybe in the second movie, you could probably say that Dan Aykroyd and, and uh, John Goodman are not quite A-grade. I think in the first movie... Um, Dan Aykroyd's A-grade. I think his voice is fantastic in the first movie. I don't know that it, it kind of holds up in, in the second movie. Um, but, you know what, look, that's quibbles. The rest of the music is just really good um, by really, really good musicians. And you can kind of get the sense of how seriously they take it in the scene where you had uh, them doing Mini the Moocher, because... They, uh, you know, they're performing on one stage, you know, uh, in their normal suits, etc. Uh, pretty much, you know, the, the kit out, the kit that they've been wearing pretty much since the start of the movie. And then all of a sudden, the scene flicks, and they're on this bright stage. They're in these really sharp outfits, and off they go, and they're singing Minnie the Moocher. And you wouldn't know that it wasn't for a, a top of the pop show or or something like that. And that's why I think, you know, it. it really is able to sell the comedy so much better because it takes the music seriously. You can basically turn off the audio. You know, this is a movie that you can actually turn off the video and just listen to uh, right the way through and you can enjoy it every bit as much. I mean, there is some visual moments, obviously the police car chases, etc. are very, very visual moments, but the sound of this movie is amazing. The way they shoot the music is amazing uh, and that you know what, from comedy proficionados where it would be so easy to go that one step further and it often happens these days where, you know, when you're lampooning something and you, you're creating a comedy, you go that one step further and you basically shoot everybody uh, and they didn't do that. They, they really treated the music so well. So that's why I think this is really, really special. Um, and so that's my take on the Blues Brothers. And uh, seeing as I'm not sure whether you're doing the Blues Brothers 2000, I won't. I won't comment on that. Um, so that's it. Uh, my Dubri will never be the same. 
Simon. But I still love you. Bye. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Gentlemen of Waffle On, thank you very much for doing the Blues Brothers. A big favourite of mine. I wish I'd been old enough to see it at the cinema. But I recorded it off TV and I watched it over and over and over again. I love it. The car crashes. The brilliant dialogue. You've got um, what lines like, The use of unnecessary force and the apprehension of the Blues Brothers has been authorised. You've got the, um, the fact that it's crept into the national psyche. There was a programme on recently that I saw where two guys sat in, a, sat in a restaurant and asked for four fried chickens and asked somebody, how much for the women, how much for your daughter? Absolutely brilliant. The, the, the lines are great. The action, the driving, the car chases. It's got Carrie Fisher as well, who I used to have a big crush on at the time. Uh, the music, absolutely brilliant. Aretha Franklin singing Think. Ray Charles, James Brown, absolutely brilliant brilliant you know the car chase through the um through the shopping center the illinois nazis driving off the uh off the off the car park or whatever henry gibson with a bloke turning around to him and, he, and saying what he said oh it's fantastic absolutely brilliant thank you very much for doing it gentlemen looking forward to listening to the um podcast really am Thank you very much. Cheers now, gents. This is Neil Morgan signing off. Excellent MP3 there. And uh, so there we go. So, uh, Pete, just to finalise off, this is your first time um, seeing it. Now you know some of the background and some of the information. Um, is it enhanced your enjoyment of the film you've just seen, or has it just kind of kept you as a bit of a... Um, really good to hear the music. Yeah, as you know, you'll never have any complaints from me on that. Really good to hear the music. You'll never hear any complaints from me on that. Mm-hmm. Um Really interesting to see it, um, especially in light of what you've told me about Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that I think that this is one of those kind of reference point films where comedy films or uh, musical films will pick out a scene or they'll do a little homage to it. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to have seen it from that particular point mm. of view. Um, I'll stick by my guns and say the plot and the comedy is absolutely paper thin. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I think given that these are well-loved characters from Saturday Night Live, I think they can get away with anything, and mm. I think they'll be real crowd-pleasers. So, yeah, um, a good experience. Thank you. Uh, well, there we go. That is uh, Waffle On about the Blues Brothers. Again, sorry that Cal can't uh, be with us, but I'm sure you understand uh, he's got a hell of a lot to do with his, uh, with his wedding, and we might be doing the next episode, may well be done over Skype, purely for that reason. Uh, we are doing the uh, Waffle On about Rick Marlon and Adrian Evanson. We was hoping to record it around this week as well, but again, um, because of uh, we decided to put this one ahead, just because it was easier to get Peter, more than anything, because uh, he's normally not in the country. Uh, so good to nail you down. Thank you very much. It's nice like, to be nailed like, down. We like the Catholic scene earlier. Yes. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us. Here's some promos. And remember, we'll be playing Everybody Needs Somebody to Love Afterwards. And if I can find it, the Hugh Lovey version of Minnie the Mooche. Take care, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> My name is Sebastian Ross. I listen to Waffle On podcasts 24 hours a day, even while operating heavy machinery or riding my wife. 
I'm the host of Doctor Who, podcast of evil. If you only listen to one Doctor Who-related podcast, make it Radio Free Scaro, The Tardis Tavern, or Who on Who. But if you're happy to listen to an amateurish, badly constructed podcast, give Podcast of Evil a try. I have access to many people who work behind the scenes on Doctor Who. They provide commentaries, share their experiences, and talk candidly about the people involved. They really do exist and aren't just me putting on a silly voice, honestly. We also have reviews and scene breakdowns by fans and respected critics. I bring you news collated by undercover reporters, alcoholic hacks who used to work for News of the World. All this and pointless filth and sweary bits. Doctor Who, Podcast of Evil, is available on iTunes and at podbean.com. This is a new podcast, and new episodes are being added whenever I can be bothered to get round to it. Love you. Bye.